0: This podcast is made possible by Napa Valley Wine Academy, America's premier wine school with locations across the United States and online. Become a recognized expert and join the wine community and gain the confidence to do what you love with the winner of the WSET and Riedel Global Wine Educator of the Year Award. Listeners of this podcast enjoy a special 5% discount on any Napa Valley Wine Academy classes when they use the code NVWA Podcast at the time of enrollment. That code again is NVWA podcast. For more information on all the courses offered, visit Napa wine That's Napa Valley wine I'm
1: a mushroom hunter, a bird watcher. It's just fascinating to me. From Napa
0: Valley Wine Academy, it's the Stories Behind Wine. A podcast dedicated to the stories, people, places, and history that influenced the world of wine. I'm Christian Nogenfuss, and on today's show, I sit down with Kathy Corson from and Winery in St. Helena, California. Kathy shares her story about what it was like to be one of the first female winemakers in Napa Valley in the late 70s. We talk about how a wine appreciation course at Pomona College put her on a path that would ultimately lead her to being one of the most respected winemakers in California. She also shares her thoughts on winemaking And the evolution of Napa Valley from the late 70s to today. Here's Kathy's
1: story. I'm Kathy Corison and I make Cabernet Sauvignon in the Napa Valley at Corison Winery.
0: Well, it's great to have you with us today. I see that you grew up in Riverside, California. Tell me a little bit about what your life looked like in Riverside, California leading up to college.
1: I have to be really careful because I grew up in suburban Southern California, and I've come to think that suburban (laughs) upbringings are fairly soul-numbing, but somehow off to college and the whole world opened up, basically.
0: Where did you go to college? What did you study in
1: college? I went to Pomona College in Claremont, not far from Riverside, and studied biology. I thought I was going to be a marine biologist until I bumped into wine as a sophomore I took a wine appreciation course on a complete whim, and it grabbed me by the neck and ran with me. Two years later, I graduated from Pomona, and two days later, I was in the Napa Valley, intent on making world-class wine. And I'm not sure I even knew what that meant exactly, but that was 40-some years ago.
0: How did that connection happen in college? You're taking a wine class. How do you make that decision that You're just going to head straight to Napa because at that point, Napa really wasn't on the map, quote unquote, so to speak. How did you make that decision?
1: Well, I fell in love with wine for all the usual reasons. It's delicious and it makes food taste better and vice versa. And you share it with friends and family. But layered on top of that, it's a whole series of living systems that conspires to the amazing alchemy that is wine. So it was really, I'm still studying biology. That's great. It's alive. Wine is alive.
0: As you're studying biology, marine biologist, what drew you to that? What drew you to the science aspect of?
1: Well, I'm just interested in anything alive. I'm a mushroom hunter, a bird watcher. It's just fascinating to me. It's just who I am.
0: And did you find a lot of parallels when you were studying wine with marine biology or biology in general?
1: Well, wine is alive. It's chemistry and physics. But for me, it's much more important than that. It's the study of life. The grapes grow on a plant, and even the cork is the bark of a tree, and a living organism makes the wine. I don't.
0: That's great. So you make this decision. You take this wine class at Pomona. You're bitten by the wine bug. You move to Napa Valley. What did the valley look like in those days, back in the mid-70s? Well,
1: the Napa Valley didn't look all that different. It was already a monoculture of grapes, because starting in the mid-60s, there was this wonderful renaissance. But when I got here in 1975, it was still fairly depressed economically and just scratching its way out of Prohibition, which had ended in 1933. But it had taken until the mid-60s for it to start to come alive again. And so when I got here in 1975, it was just going crazy. But I would say that the biggest change is that it was very rural still. What was it? And you made
0: a conscious decision at that point that you were going to make wine in Napa Valley? Or was that a kind of a journey of?
1: Well, Napa Valley is really all there was in those days. I mean, there was Sonoma as well, but I think it wasn't quite as far along the path of Renaissance. And the, really all the other regions, you know, in California didn't exist. Napa was it.
0: Were the opportunities plentiful for someone looking to get into the wine industry or into winemaking? Or did you find that you had to make and find opportunities for yourself?
1: Well, when I got to the Napa Valley, there were only 30 wineries. That's hard to imagine today. It is. But my timing couldn't have been better because the industry was exploding. There were lots and lots of opportunities for young people, regardless of gender, First had to go over to Davis to get my master's degree. I needed a good technical foundation, but there were lots of opportunities.
0: What did UC Davis look like in in those days, the enology department?
1: It was very different. The enology department and the viticulture department were separate departments. They were in different buildings, and that's very telling. Our winemaking facilities, we made wine in five-gallon demijohns. Now, thanks to the Mandavis, there's a beautiful winery at UC Davis. So that's very different.
0: You go through the master's program and what made you decide that you needed a formal education when getting into winemaking? Because there are some winemakers that haven't gone through formal education and just jumped in. And then there's others like yourself and many other famous winemakers who've chosen the formal path. Did you see a, an easier entry that way? or
1: Back in those days, women mostly didn't make wine and I felt like I needed the credential mostly. But I also believe strongly that one way or the other, you need a good technical foundation, and that's just an easy way to get it, right. to go study
0: yep. winemaking. You brought up a good point that women winemakers weren't abundant in, let's call it the early re-Renaissance of Napa Valley. And I think you encountered some resistance even in, at the master's level, where I think I read, had a professor <laughs> who tried to dissuade you from getting into winemaking.
1: No, it wasn't that he wanted to dissuade me from getting into winemaking. I think he was trying to do me a favor. He sat me down as I left and wanted to be sure that I understood that I would never get a job in the Napa Valley.
0: Okay. And what was your reaction to that?
1: I didn't say anything out loud, but a little voice inside of me said, watch me. That's great. (laughs) And thank goodness
0: that you did. (laughs) How did you go about carving that success, carving that path to being the first female winemaker in, in Napa Valley?
1: Oh, I wasn't the first. Selma Long was already running Robert Mondavi, okay. and her title was not winemaker, but she was effect, or in essence, the winemaker. Donine Sample, now Donine Dyer, I think she was at Inglenook at the time, and very soon went to Chandon as the founding assistant winemaker. And then the winemaker left very soon. So Donine was the winemaker at Chandon. I don't know exactly the the um, chronology, but they were making wine here before I was.
0: Did you connect with them? Were they part of the journey of opportunity? Tell me a little bit about that path you leave.
1: Well, it's a very small community, even to this day. It's a very tight, small community of winemakers here in Napa. So, of course, I met them and knew them. In fact, I've been tasting with Daneen for over 35 years in a tasting group, so a good friend and traveling together. Uh, Zelma Long I've always admired. I've never worked for her, but she's always been an inspiration.
0: Has the landscape changed today? You think there's opportunities are different for women in the wine business?
1: Well, I think it's changed for everybody because the rate of expansion has slowed down. Back in the day when I got out of Davis, it wasn't very good for the industry, but it was great for us. We were all running wineries within a year of getting out of school. That takes longer today, and that's probably good.
0: You ended up at Chapelet for 10 years. Prior to that, from the time of leaving UC Davis and joining Chapelet, what did your journey look like?
1: I did an internship in 1978 at Fremark Abbey. They were making incredibly good Chardonnay at the time. And... Because I had finished my degree, I was there for better part of a year. From there, I went up to Everdon, a little tiny winery, long defunct, way up on Spring Mountain. And I made the wine there for two years without any help. It was an amazing, steep learning curve. I did everything from government compliance to forklift driving to winemaking to laboratory. It was a wonderful opportunity because it was full control. We only did 60 tons, but we shoveled every single grape into the crusher. And then after fermentation, every single skin was shoveled into the press. So it was an amazing opportunity to be in complete charge at a very early age. It sounds
0: like a great opportunity to get in really great shape, too.
1: It was. And then I had wines to show. It's a little bit like a portfolio. And from there, I went to Chapelet. And you went looking
0: or Chapelet went looking for...
1: It was mostly them coming to me.
0: What was it like moving from Spring Mountain over to Pritchard Hill to work with what some consider today to be some of the best vineyard lands in Napa Valley?
1: Most of the grapes at Everdun came from up in Calistoga, so they weren't Spring Mountain grapes. And then, of course, Chapelet has some of the great Cabernet vineyards of the world, always has. When I started making the wine there, they already had a top reputation for world-class Cabernet.
0: What do you think makes the vineyards on Pritchard Hill so special and capable of such greatness?
1: Well, it's a combination of climate and soils, just like any other great place to grow wine. The soils are volcanic up there. They're red, and that gives a certain character to the wines. And then like all the hillsides, it's a rock pile, so there's not a lot of dirt. So the vines struggle and make scraggly clusters of little tiny berries that are delicious.
0: So during this 10-year period, we're talking late 70s to late 80s, is that?
1: Well, I made the wine at Chapelet for all the 80s. All the 80s, okay. Right.
0: And Cabernets of that era are quite different than the Cabernets that uh, folks encounter today from Napa Valley. Tell me a little bit about, a lot has been talked about, that it was a difference in winemaking style. Some people attribute it to climate change. Tell me your perspective on why there's been this evolution of style of Cabernet from the 80s to now.
1: Well, there's fashion in wine styles, just like there's fashion in anything else. And I think it's mostly a change in style. The big difference between then and now is that we've all learned a lot about canopy management. So regardless of the style we're making, we've learned to grow the grapes much better and in the case of my style, with careful canopy management, we're able to get Cabernet ripe at lower sugars. And that allows me to make wines that are both powerful and elegant, and they have, still have good natural acidity and moderate alcohol, but they're packed with flavor. So that really is a result of the work we do out in the vineyard. It's balanced between the way the vine grows and fruits, and probably more importantly, it's getting the right amount of air and light into the fruit while they're ripening. I would say that stylistically, I'm making wines a lot like the wines of the 70s, but I think we're all better at it. I think we're, we can fully ripen Cabernet with ripe tannins, no green flavors, and more concentration than we did in those days. When I got to Napa, grape growing was comprised of pruning and picking. Crops were much bigger than they are today at the fine wine level. Mm-hmm.
0: So there's a lot higher touch these days than
1: Much higher touch, and it results in much better grapes. Right.
0: You have this 10-year run at Chapelet, and are you thinking at this point that you really want to do this for yourself, that it's time to get on out on your own to make the wines that you want to make? Or does it just an opportunity present itself to own your own winery?
1: I wouldn't say it was that I wanted to be on my own. There was a wine in my inside of me that needed to get out. I love the wines of the world. And knew that some of the best vineyards in Napa are up in the hills, and they make beautiful, beautiful wines. But stylistically, the wine inside of me was what I was describing earlier. It's powerful. Cabernet's going to be powerful no matter what you do. But it's also elegant and finessed. And by then, I'd been making wine from all over the valley, and I knew that I needed to go down to what used to be called the Rutherford Bench. Since then, it's been cut up into sub appellations, but it still has the potential to produce the grapes that make the wine I had in my head. So I basically started to buy grapes and barrels instead of cars and houses as a young adult. So it really wasn't, I want to be on my own, it's, there's this wine I need to make.
0: And you come across the property in St. Helena on, as you said, what used to be considered a Long Rutherford bench, the Kronos Vineyard. What did you see in this piece of property where you said, this is what I'm going to invest in and stake my future on?
1: The Rutherford Bench area had been famous for Cabernet since the end of the 19th century, actually. And if you look at the soil maps, you see that all the great vineyards were on one soil series, the Bale gravelly Loam, between Oakville and St. Lena. So it was my husband, that William Martin, that identified the piece. He took the soil maps and was out looking for bale gravelly loam, and uh, he found it. It was a miracle. It was a property that had been growing Cabernet since the early '70s, but the grapes had gone mostly to uh, Mandavi Reserve, but. That property had been the first property in the Napa Valley ever denied a use permit to build a winery because the owners really just wanted the highway frontage for tasting room reasons. They were going to knock down the wonderful old vineyard house, and they were going to have water treatment ponds in the back. And it's the very first property that the county and the neighbors shut down. So it was put on the market, and they took their ball back to France, and. It sat there and sat there until we stumbled upon it almost 10 years later. It was a miracle. We were told that the house was condemned and that the vines were AXR, and it was during the time when we all realized the X R was going to have to be replanted at great cost. Turns out that it's not AXR, at St. George, and that's why we have this wonderful old vineyard.
0: So that was really the kind of the double home run, right? The Soil Series and the St. George Rootstock that has allowed you to make.
1: It was just dumb luck, serendipity. But it allowed us to buy the property for basically bare land. And we've just been very lucky to first produce the Kronos there. And then not too much later, we needed a place to make the wine. And so, again, my husband designed the winery and made it happen, and we finally had a home. I think it was my 13th vintage in my sixth location when we finally crushed at the winery in 1999.
0: That's amazing. The name Kronos, where does that come from?
1: Kronos is one of the titans in Greek mythology, and they were the sons of heaven and earth, and that's where wine sits for me, between earth and sky. And I also like the alliteration Kathy Corse and Kronos. Yeah. <laughs> Kronos Cabernet. <laughs> okay. And you named the plot? We named it. You did. We did.
0: And was there a lot of back and forth between you and William on what to call it or did it just
1: No. He's of Greek extraction and really liked using a Greek name and it just clicked.
0: That's great. You also have a recent acquisition or a recent piece of land that is now part of the winery called Sunbasket Vineyard? Tell me a little bit about that special piece of land and how it came to be in in your hands and part of your program.
1: It's another miracle. It's a vineyard that we sourced for nearly 30 years through three different owners. And then again, William had the foresight and the ability to purchase that vineyard in 2015. So having sourced it all those years, and it was always my favorite vineyard, it's finally secure for us. And we named it Sunbasket because I remember when I was at Davis studying with John Consgard who grew up next door to Andre Chelechev. Andre would come to some of our tastings and dinners back in the day, and I'll never forget Andre calling that little corner of the world a Sunbasket. And it is. St. Helena has always been called Sunny St. Helena. It's the warmest part of the valley. It's where the fog burns off first in the summer every day. So um, it just fit.
0: Tell me a little bit about where Sunbasket is located in
1: St. Helena. It's on Inglewood, just south of St. Helena. It's just due north of Kronos and the winery. If you had a good arm, you could throw a rock at it.
0: (laughs) And these, I take it it's mostly Cabernet or all Cabernet?
1: It's almost all Cabernet. There's a little tiny bit of Cabernet Franc that we bottle separately. It's not blended with the Cabernet.
0: And on similar rootstock, on St. George rootstock, or is this a newer...
1: No, that vineyard was on AXR and was replanted in the 90s, Okay, just like most of the vineyards in the valley. And so it's mature now. It's almost a quarter century old, but it is a younger vineyard, and it's the spacing is a bit closer, and the trellising is more modern, the training is more modern.
0: A lot changed having to replant as a result of AXR rootstock. I mean, the valley was prior to that primarily Chardonnay, right?
1: Well, I wouldn't say primarily Chardonnay, but everything was all over the place. There was Riesling up in Calistoga, and, and there was Cabernet down in the Carneros. And it really turned out to be a opportunity to get the right varieties in the right places. We had learned a lot by then about where things should be, and it, it gave us a forced opportunity to move things in that direction.
0: It sounds like the fact that you came at this in the 70s, when things were booming and opportunity was abounding, that you really had the opportunity to get to know, intimately, Napa Valley and see it through its transition. How do you think that gives you an advantage or maybe a deeper insight into winemaking than someone just coming right out of school and diving into winemaking today?
1: Napa Valley was a community of farmers, And that's all winemakers are. And so I think to the extent that we remember that, we make the best wine. And that's what I hope for the Napa Valley is that we remember that we're really farmers.
0: You're obviously known for your fantastic Cabernets that are in a different style than, again, most dare I say, modern Napa Valley Cabernets, not to say that yours are not modern, just in a different style. What do you attribute that to? Do you attribute that to a conscious effort to make those wines, or are you letting the land and the grapes express themselves?
1: Well, I think that's one and the same to a certain extent. I drink wine fairly widely across the world and maybe even wildly and appreciate wines that have life, and are almost a vibration, and that's always been really important to me. So, the style was in my head, and from there, I had to go find the grapes that would do it, which were the grapes from the Benchland between Rutherford and Salina. I wouldn't say that my style is old fashioned because the Riper fashion really only lasted for about fifteen years, and there's a sea change back. And I think more importantly, there's just more diversity. People are making a wider range of styles, which I think is good for all of us. Well, how
0: important is it to, do you think, for winemakers and for winery owners to expose themselves to the wines of the world and to have a broad perspective? Is that something that's important to making great wine or is that just...
1: Well, it's certainly important to me. And I think our job is to let the place speak, but if we don't have a sense of the universe, it's really hard to understand that. Good point. Uh,
0: You also make Gewürztraminer. I do.
1: It's from left field. It's totally dry, Alsatian-inspired. The grapes are not from Napa, it's far too warm, in my opinion, for aromatic whites. So the grapes come from up in Mendocino County in the Anderson Valley. And they're old vines, and I've always personally loved the wines of Alsace. I love them for their use of Germanic aromatic varieties, but made with French sensibilities. So it's a place in the world that's been traded back and forth between France and Germany forever. And so their wine is a hybrid, their food is a hybrid, their language is a hybrid, their culture is a hybrid. So it's just really interesting and singular And they're wonderful with food.
0: I think we need more of that, not experimentation, but abilities to see those kind of varieties also championed when in these days we see a lot of a move to champion just a very few specific varieties.
1: Lucky for anybody that loves wine, there's more and more diversity all over the world. Diversity in styles, diversity of varieties. We've gotten away from thinking there were four things you could make.
0: So you travel quite a bit to wine regions. I think you just got back from Sicily.
1: I did. I wouldn't say a lot, but over the years I've tried very hard to visit areas where they make wine I admire.
0: If you were told today you couldn't make wine in Napa Valley and you had to choose a new wine region, any region that would interest you or you think you would love to uh, a hand at crafting wines from?
1: It's hard to pick one, but I love the wines of northern Italy. It would be Italy, somewhere in Italy.
0: How was the trip to Sicily? You said you had some epiphanies and some learnings that happened. Well, one of the things I've
1: come to really appreciate about other regions of the world that have been making wine forever is that they've evolved varieties that evolved in their climate with their food. And often those varieties make wine that is much better than wineries that are trying to use the famous French varieties. That was reinforced yet again because some of their native varieties are just beautiful. And then Sicily is just so rich. I mean, historically and culturally, it's just was, and it's gorgeous. And it's basically rural. It's a farming island. It was the breadbasket to Europe for thousands of years.
0: You brought up something that I'd love to pose a question on. And you said that, you know, a lot of wine regions have been making wines for centuries and the indigenous varieties have taken to that land and are the best at expressing what is possible. Napa Valley if we look at it from a timeline perspective, as a relative newcomer to the world of wine and it has chosen Cabernet and as its flagship grape. Do you think there's any other opportunity for a different grape variety too? I
1: don't think we chose Cabernet. I think we learned that Cabernet is particularly suited and it's taken a while to fully understand that. I think we can make Cabernet as well or better as any place in the world. It's just the conditions, it's the soils, it's the climate, and it took a while to figure that out. We don't have a long history. We didn't evolve. Varieties didn't evolve and be chosen over a long period of time, hundreds and thousands of years. So we had to take vines from elsewhere and just figure it out.
0: Mm-hmm. You have a lot of admirers. You have a lot of supporters. And you have a lot of accolades as well. You've, I think, a 2011 winemaker of the year, San Francisco Chronicle. You were just recently one of the finalists for the James Beard Award for Wine Professional. How does that feel? I mean, here's someone who was going to be a marine biologist who took a wine class in college and has reached what I think a lot of people would agree is the top of the pyramid.
1: Well, I've been really lucky and it's just really gratifying. It took over a quarter century. <laughs> <laughs>
0: An overnight success that yeah. took, <laughs> that took, <laughs> took quarter a quarter century.
1: More than a quarter of a century. So it's, it's extremely gratifying.
0: What's next for you? I mean, a winemaker has a finite amount of vintages and harvests that they can influence or put their thumbprint on. What's next for you?
1: Well, you're right. Even if I live to be 100, I can count the vintages left. I'm asked that question a lot. And I don't wanna make more wine, I wanna make better wine. I feel like I'm on another steep learning curve in the vineyard right now because I think that's the very most important thing and there's still so much to learn. I wanna ask
0: you this question because there are a lot of different opinions and a lot of different viewpoints on this and that is climate change and the change we see in our climate and in our weather patterns. And this year is maybe a great example. Two days ago it was mid 90s and today we're windy and just barely scratching 70 degrees. Is that a threat to Napa Valley?
1: It's awfully hard to know because I think the change part is the key word. its I wouldn't say it's getting warmer. We've had some of the warmest seasons ever in the last 10 years, and we've had some of the coldest seasons. So it's a little hard to know where it's headed. I do know that Cabernet needs a lot of heat to get ripe, and in fact that's one of the secrets of Napa Valley is that we can— reliably ripen Cabernet every year. Most other places in the world, at least historically, couldn't. It was the warmest years were their best years because they could get Cabernet ripe. We can always get Cabernet ripe. And in fact, arguably, we can get it too ripe. I don't really know the answer to that question. I know we're all spending a lot of time thinking about management in the vineyard.
0: What advice would you give someone just starting out in the wine business who, like yourself, has been bitten by the wine bug and they want to get in into what I think some would see as a more close system, if you will, these days than when you were starting out? What would you tell a young woman who wants to be a winemaker in the valley?
1: I would say just start walking. You never know where you're going to wind up. I'd also say that I think California is a very big, diverse place with diverse soils, diverse climates, and I think there's amazing opportunity all over the state to make world-class wines. So, in today's world, I might not come to Napa.
0: One last question, and I recently had the opportunity to travel to Burgundy, rich history, facing unique challenges as far as climate is concerned as well, but also a similar kind of conundrum that we see here in the Valley, and that is big money chasing small quantity of land, driving vineyard prices up, and driving wines out of the reach of the average wine consumer. They see that as a real threat. Do you think we face that same threat here in Napa Valley?
1: It's certainly a challenge. I think land prices and grape prices are still a threat to me as and my winery, you know, 33 years into my project. So, It's a huge challenge. Not sure what to do about it, except to the extent that I can own and control my own grapes, that helps protect me.
0: Great. Well, I really appreciate your time, Kathy, and the insight into your career and into the wine business. And we hope that we can have you back sometime soon on the show.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on the Stories Behind Wine. If you would like to suggest an interview subject or show topic, please email us at sbh at napa wine Again, that email address is sbh at NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. If you like what you've heard, we hope that you'll visit our website, NapaValleyWineAcademy.com forward slash podcast, and share us with your friends and colleagues. We'd also really appreciate a positive review on iTunes. It really helps out. Be sure to check out the archive section on our website for previous episodes, And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. Join us next time for another episode of the stories behind wine. Until then, thank you for listening.